Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to the new episode of Talking France. If you want to keep up to date with everything happening in France and learn more about how the country works, then this podcast is for you. In today's episode, we'll look at whether France is heading for another wave of strikes and protests prompted by yet another pension reform. Yes, nothing riles France's trade unions more than a proposal to make people work for longer in life. But that's what President Emmanuel Macron intends to do. We'll find out why and what's likely to happen. We'll also discuss why wearing a roll neck jumper is the latest energy saving measure recommended by the French government. We'll examine what's gone wrong with the Eurostar service and find out why Brexit is part to blame for higher prices and longer queues on the Paris to London rail route. We'll also hear about a battle brewing between mussel farmers and spider crabs on the French coast and learn about that famous autumn Gallic pastime of mushroom foraging and why it's more dangerous than you'd think. And stay with us until the end to learn some useful French vocab and expressions. To do all this, I'll be joined by the team from the local France, editor Emma Pearson, journalists Jen Mansfield and James Harrington, and our political expert John Litchfield. I'm your host, Ben McParland. Emma and Jen, thanks for joining me this week. Emma, it's good to have you back with us. You were away last week. Just remind us where you were again. I was in La Vendée, which is kind of on the west coast of France, and I had a great week. It's beautiful part of uh, part of France, uh, right on the coast, long sandy beaches, much less crowded than the Med. There's lots of dunes, marshlands, wildlife reserves, all that kind of thing. You can go what they call uh, pêche à pied, which is kind of foraging where you can fish in rock pools, shallow waters for clams, razor clams, oysters, mussels, wow. absolutely loads of stuff. You can eat the very delicious local farmed oysters. You can drink the local white wine. And you can also go and visit donkeys that wear trousers. Um, I Sounds like you had a great week. I had a great week, yes. And I strongly maintain that La Vendée is the best of all of France's coastlines. I think that sounds like a statement said by someone who's never been to anywhere else in France, apart from the Vendée. <laughs> Lots of places in France, and La Vendée is the best. Jen, uh, La Vendée is just south of Brittany. You prefer Brittany, don't you? I do. Uh, I will admit that my preference to Brittany is sentimental. It's where my partner's family is from, so it's always a very calming time to go there. I haven't been to La Vendée, so I can't really compare it, but I think Brittany has one of the best coastlines. There's lots of little islands like Ile d'Arts and Ile de Croix, and then the food is great. You can get crepe, you can have cider, you can also go looking for oysters, uh, though maybe it's a little bit different because you wait for low tide and then you can walk through the mud banks, but it's kind of fun. Yeah, okay. Allow me to settle this argument and give the deciding vote to Brittany. Sorry, Emma. Um, however, I think we should probably let uh, our readers and listeners decide this. I think we should put a poll on the website, guys, asking our readers and listeners to vote and explain their choice for their favourite part of the French coastline. There are so many options. We haven't even talked about the Mediterranean. That is one place I really don't know. But should we just let readers decide, eh? I look forward to the readers agreeing with me that I am clearly right. Because also, guys, apart from crepe and cider, what is Brittany famous for? Rain. And does anyone want that on their holidays? No, they do not. There you go, listeners. You have a, a glimpse there of what me and Jen have to put up with each week. <laughs> 
let's let uh, let's you decide. Please go to our website. We'll have that article poll published as soon as this podcast is finished. I think Emma, and let's see what the results are. Right, we should move on to this week's talking points, Emma. We're talking about pensions again. What's going on? Oh, I know. I know this does sound kind of dull, but I think maybe just stick with us here because Emmanuel Macron wants to have a second go at reforming the French pension system. And even if you don't have a French pension, this is quite likely to affect you. So last time Macron tried to reform French pensions, I had to buy a new pair of boots. And the reason for this is that I completely walked through the soles of my old boots because for two months there was virtually no transport running in Paris because the country was basically paralysed by the longest running transport strike since 1968. Now, this was just before the pandemic, wasn't it? The kind of winter of 2019. Uh, We're going to hear more from John shortly on this reform and why Macron has got it back on the table. But Emma, are you saying this is going to cause anger and controversy again? I think so, yeah. I mean, it did cause quite a lot of anger and controversy the last time that they did it. As you mentioned, the winter of 2019-2020 was this huge transport strike. There were virtually no trains, buses, public transport running for weeks at a time. Loads of other people joined in the strike. Uh, Teachers, lawyers, even the ballerinas went on strike for a bit, although I've got to say that affected my daily life a bit less. Um, But to cut a very long story short, Macron did eventually at that time manage to get his reforms passed, but they were never implemented because, as you just said, the pandemic then happened. But now, rather than just try to actually implement what he managed to get passed back then, Macron wants to have another go at the reform, and this time he's tackling something really sacred, which is the retirement age. He wants to lower it. <laughs> no, unfortunately no. not. No, he wants to he wants to raise the retirement oh. age. France does have one of the lower retirement ages in Europe, you'll probably be unsurprised to hear. It's currently at 62, and part one of the reforms back in 2019 was scrapping some of these sort of special regimes that allowed certain professions to retire early, like train drivers could retire at 55. So it scrapped all of those, but it actually didn't touch the official retirement age, which kept at 62. Now, Macron wants to raise that age for everyone up to 65. And yes, there's quite a lot of opposition to this. So what's the talk from this opposition, the unions, the unions like the CGT? Are they up for another fight? Well, the CGT are always up for a fight, but um, yes, as I said, a lot of opposition to this already. Uh, We've seen a strike today, which was mainly over the cost of living, but there was also quite a lot of angry talk about these pension plans. Macron's political opponents on the left are strongly opposed. In fact, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, he wants to do what you said, which is to actually lower the pension age, bring it down to 60. And the unions also appear to be ready for action. Uh, There was a poll last week that found that 55% of respondents didn't want the reform and 67% said they were prepared to support protests against it. So I think if there are protests and strikes, it seems like they would be quite well supported. I should say that was a joke about me suggesting Macron wanted to lower the pension age, but I didn't realise people in France on the left actually are in favour of lowering the pension age when France has got one of the lowest in Europe. Uh, It's time to bring in John now, who can shed some more light on this reform. John, just explain to us what's in it for Macron. Why does he want to push this through again? Well, I mean, you know, it was one of his promises, pledges or campaign uh, points in his first election in 2017. And he did actually, you may remember, there were huge demonstrations and strikes just before the whole COVID thing happened. Um, and it was actually enacted by, by Parliament, was ready to be um Put into into effect, and and Macron pulled it. And when when the COVID epidemic began, as he thought it was just too socially divisive at that time, maybe he used that as an excuse because it, it has had caused so many uh, so much anger in the country. 
So in a sense, it's kind of unfinished business for him. And he, he, I think, has come to see it as the sort of the key to all other reforms, which in a sense it is, because, uh, you know, the budget that went through this week, which this week absolutely predicated on there being a pension reform by next summer. The figures can't add it up unless, unless that goes through. So in a sense, he's kind of decided it will happen. It has to happen. He can't do anything in this, um, in his second term unless he gets pension reform too. It's become a kind of you know, sea serpent, a great totem that he has to slay to prove that he is still able to do something despite having a minority, um, a majority or a less than absolute majority in the, in the parliament. So I think there are good reasons to go ahead with pension reform. I think Macron's obsession with it, if that's the right word, is partly political. It's partly to, to make a point that he's still there. He can still get domestic reform through, through despite having no majority in parliament. Now, there's plenty of opposition in France, certainly on the left and among unions, when, you know, any anyone suggests that the French should work longer in their lives. You're one of the people who described previously, the, you know, the French pension system as unsustainable. Does uh, a reform need to take place? I think there are two reasons why I would say that and, and why Macron and others say it. One, uh, you know, the, the, the prediction is that uh, this year, the, the pension, I mean, the way this pension system works, as you know, that it, people's pensions, uh, all people's pensions are paid out of young people who are still working. And that system is supposed to be in balance at all times. This year it is going to be. Uh, next year it's going to go hugely into deficit and then it will be an even bigger deficit for the next 10 or 15 years unless something is done. Simply people are, because they're retiring quite early in France and they're living for long periods, there are far more demands on the pension system than there are people paying into it looking ahead. So financially, yeah, it is a huge chain and ball on, on the French economy looking ahead unless something is done about it. People argue about the figures. You know, there are people who point out that that's not entirely true because often if people come off pensions early, then they just go on unemployment and therefore it comes out of another part of the state budget. And it is a very complex issue. But overall, I think it's a fact that the pension system is going to be an imbalance. But secondly, and this is, I think, Macron's main point, is that France does work less than other uh, competitive countries, partner countries in the EU and the world. Not in sense because of 35-hour week, not because French are lazy, French who do work, work very well and very productively, but because France retires earlier than other countries. I mean, 62 is the minimum time you can you can take your your pension people do age you can take your pension people do work uh, later but if you look at other countries you know Denmark 65 Luxembourg 65 Italy 67 I think Britain 66 Germany 65 and seven, seven 65 and seven months France at 62 you were France is three years or so earlier than other countries in Europe, which means that there was a very interesting OECD figures produced two or three years ago now, which pointed out that if you take the whole population, babies, old people, everyone, and divide it into the number of hours worked in the country in every year, France only works 630 hours a year per person, whereas Germany 722, UK over 800, US over 800. So the French although they work very hard, if they do work, overall, the country as a whole doesn't work as hard. And it explains in some ways why the French economy has kind of gone slightly off the rails in recent years and has not been able to keep up with other countries. 
And so that's Macron's argument. It's one I go along with. Other people point out other things, why it's not true. Maybe we should be sharing work more than we are now. Maybe on the 35-hour work principle, it's right. People should retire early and that should reduce unemployment. Don't go along with that myself. But the, the those are the two arguments, I think, for pension reform. One, it can't be sustained financially. Two, it's actually one of the reasons why France is less competitive in, in Europe and in the world. Interesting. Thanks, John. Just looking ahead, John, how do you see the next few months going in terms of, you know, are we going to see a repeat of the protests uh, that we saw a couple of years ago when this when Macron's first pension reform went through. And- well, absolutely, there's going to be protests, there's no doubt about that, and uh, you know, which I think is one of Macron's arguments now, whether, whichever way I do it, there are protests. Last last time he had two or three years of consultations and then, you know, he put the, part, the, the reform through Parliament very, very carefully, and yet there were still huge protests, and uh, even by those relatively moderate unions. So his view now is we've been through all that. I've been twice elected with this as my in my platform. Therefore, I, I have a kind of duty. I have a right to put this through. Thanks, John. Very interesting. And just a reminder to listeners, you can read more about the pension reform and what will happen next on our website, thelocal.fr, when John's column is published this week. And each week, we like to pick out some personalities, some characters in the news in France. This week, we've gone for Bruno Le Maire. He's the country's finance minister. He's been in the news this week, Emma. He has, yes. Bruno Le Maire, turtleneck fan, erotica writer, France's longest serving finance minister of the Fifth Republic, and of course, the man responsible for the 2023 budget, which is what we've been talking about this week. Can you just explain this turtleneck reference that you've made there? <laughs> yeah. Le Maire made headlines this week when he was doing a radio interview and he said, You will no longer see me with a tie, but with a turtleneck, and I think it will be very good. It will allow us to save energy. This might sound like he was kind of talking about sort of men's fashion, but but he was actually talking about France's energy saving plans, which we've talked about on here before, uh, which include turning down the heating in public buildings. So he was saying he's going to just start wearing a, a jumper to the office and turn down his heating. I think it's fair to say the reaction to this has mostly been absolute mockery, especially when Le Maire tweeted a picture of himself posing in a black turtleneck. Jen, you've been a good student. You're actually wearing a turtleneck today. I am. So it is I, having some effect. Yeah, I, I followed the advice. It. Just sticking with Le Maire, he's been around since 2017 as Macron's finance minister, which is quite remarkable, really. Tell us a bit more about him. Uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, he's been he's been with Macron ever since Macron was first elected in 2017. And like normally French finance ministers, they're a bit like those goldfish that you win at the fair. They don't last very long. But Le Maire does. So Macron obviously either likes him or at least rates his abilities. And this week, obviously, as the finance minister, he's in charge of the budget, which we kind of got the first glimpse of this week. This still needs to be passed through Parliament, and that could be a bit of a fight. But it's quite an interesting budget. There are two really striking things about it. And the first thing is the level of borrowing, which is massive, 270 billion euro, which is an all-time record. So he's raiding the bank for, for this one. But the second most interesting thing I think about is what all this money is being spent on. And it's really about protecting people from the effects of the cost of living crisis. There's a lot in there too sort of shield um, the French people and the French economy from uh, from rising inflation. Some of these measures were actually announced in advance, so things like the um, energy price cap, which carries on into, uh, into 2023, pay rises to public sector employees. But there are also some sort of new things, income tax indexation, for example. So if you manage to get a pay rise in order to cover the increased cost of living, you won't end up paying more tax on it, because that obviously defeats the point of 
getting a pay rise. OK, just before I bring in John to quickly discuss uh, the budget and Le Maire himself, you mentioned erotica writer. Can you just uh, tell us more about that? <laughs> yeah, he's quite a prolific writer, actually. He's uh, he's written several books, but uh, early in his career, under a pseudonym, he apparently wrote an erotic novel, which I've not read and I really don't intend to. But he has some uh, some quite florid prose. His most recent work was a, a book about his, his time as the, the French finance minister. And I've just pulled out this little quote for it that I thought you might enjoy. He had a blue gaze, tilted by metallic sparkles, like a lake burdened with sunshine, whose surface it would have been impossible under the scintillating reflections to pierce. Wow. And, well, that's from a book, or is that from a recent Conseil de Ministre meeting? <laughs> that was in his book, although maybe he says it in the minister's meeting as well. It's describing Emmanuel Macron and his blue, blue eyes. Wow. And have you just got any example of his erotica novel? No, I have oh, not. come on. <laughs> no, I have not. I have never read it. I'm not going to. OK, OK, fine. Thank you, Emma. Now I'm bringing in John Litchfield, our political expert on the line from Normandy. John, we've been talking about Bruno Le Maire He's quite a remarkable character, given he's been Macron's finance minister for six years. He's passed another budget this week. Yeah, I mean, mean, Le Maire is interesting. I mean, I I can't remember how many finance ministers there were under Sarkozy, but there were four or five, I think. Uh, uh, They tend to come and go very quickly, a bit like Italian prime ministers, French finance ministers. And here we have Bruno Le Maire, who is from the centre-right, is not really absolutely uh, four, four square with, with Macronist-type politics, has been finance minister all through Macron's first term and now into his second and is likely to remain there, I think. I, he's being spoken of as a quite, a quite likely potential candidate to be the presidential candidate in 2027 from the, the centre-centre-right, possibly in rivalry with Edouard Philippe for that role once Macron cannot run again. His Personality, I think, although he's, uh, I quite find him quite an impressive figure. I'm not sure he's, he's quite got the sort of charisma and personality to to run for president. But uh, yeah, I think he is an interesting and has been, I think, one of the, the solid planks of the whole Macron era has been has been Le Maire. Does Macron trust him? I'm told not. Uh, I'm told mm. that there isn't much sort of um, affection or trust between them, but that Macron ex- uh, accepts him as a very uh, effective and well-respected figure in financial markets mm. in the business world. So there he remains. Now, each week on Talking Points, we like to uh, take a trip around certain parts of France, that have been in the news. Firstly, Jen, we're off to Montmartre. It's not too far from our office. It's a place that our listeners will likely know very well, uh, given the huge uh, attraction for tourists up there. Tell us why we're talking about Montmartre this week. Yes, so we're talking about Montmartre because the Vendages de Montmartre are next week. Um, So you might know Montmartre because of the basilica that's on top of the hill, which, fun fact, is actually going to be categorized as a historic monument soon, which I was a bit surprised to find out it wasn't already. But anyway, the hill, or the boot, of Montmartre is there's this quaint little urban vineyard called the Vigne de Montmartre or the Clos Montmartre and it's been around since the 1930s. Actually vines have been growing there since the 900s but it became an official vineyard in the middle of the city almost a hundred years ago to stop real estate developers from using that land and so the year after it became a vineyard in the city uh, the people living around the area hosted a harvest festival and that sort of stuck around as an annual tradition ever since. Uh, So it takes place every fall 
and it's coming up next week, and it's free. Uh, you get to spend a few days doing wine tastings, and there are wine auctions, and there's a parade, which is very much worth going to. You'll see a bunch of people wearing these funky-looking robes with different colors, um, and they're representing the different wine-growing regions across France. So yeah, it's it's really cool, and it's uh, it's it's quite magnificent that there's a vineyard inside of Paris. Fantastic. I've been in Paris 12 years. I've never actually been. Okay, Jen, from Paris, we're going to head out west, where a huge fight is brewing between mussel farmers and spider crabs. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. So if you've ever been to this part of France, the coasts of Brittany and Normandy, you may have noticed these spiky little things poking up out of the ocean close to the shoreline. They almost look like poles. Honestly, when I first saw them, I thought they had some sort of cultural or historic significance because I'd never seen them before and I wasn't familiar at all. But they're actually mussel farms and they're under serious threat because of an invasive species of crabs. And like you said, these are spider crabs and they're feeding on the mussels in abnormally high numbers so that's why the mussel farmers are very angry and normally this wouldn't be a concern because spider crabs are a migratory species so they would be moving along uh, but it's believed that the warming ocean waters are what's pushing them to spend more time along France's coast and this means that they're spending more time eating the mussels and unfortunately these crabs don't really have many natural predators besides humans. And so they're just sort of being allowed to continue eating the mussels. And local producers are really concerned that if the crab, if the crab population isn't controlled in the near future, then the mussel production could end in the region within the next decade, which is pretty sad for moulfrit, which are a classic in the region. Are they, is moulfrit, are you saying moulfrit are going to be threatened? Well, Sort of. They're not doomed yet. Uh, there are some solutions. Mussel farmers are requesting permission to control the crab numbers by killing them or basically by dragging them further out to sea away from the mussel farms. Um, and the other possible solution is eating them. These crabs are edible, but apparently the supply of spider crabs is more than the demand. So maybe next time you take a trip to the French coast, you should try to order some spider crab. <laughs> As someone from the Chesapeake Bay in the U.S., crabs are delicacies, and I definitely will be doing this. Mm, I'm not sure about spider I have eaten spider crab, but I just find crab is a lot of effort for not much reward. And also, you know, you have to crack the legs open, don't you, with these nutcracker things and it just bits of crab would fly off. I remember a bit landing in my mother-in-law's hair and <laughs> too scared to tell her that she had spider crab in her hair. I just find it, you know, it's just a lot of effort for not much reward. In 2019, the cross-channel train service Eurostar celebrated its 25th anniversary of carrying passengers between London and Paris, Brussels and Lille. The future looked rosy with Eurostar hoping to extend its range of destinations to other parts of France and Europe. But then came the pandemic and the impact of Brexit, which well and truly put the brakes on. Eurostar was forced to stop services at two stations in Kent and has recently announced it will end its direct service from London to Disneyland near Paris next summer. And now, a letter from the company's CEO to MPs in London that was published on Twitter has really laid bare just how big the problems are and why passengers are paying the price. Jen, this two-page letter has been doing the rounds on Twitter in recent days and really caused a stir. Eurostar is such a cracking service, taking you from the city centre of Paris to the centre of London, unlike when you travel by plane, of course. But just tell us about the problems it's in. So we're talking about Eurostar because CEO Jacques Dema wrote a really long letter to British MPs basically explaining that the rail service is in a super precarious financial situation. In the letter, he said Eurostar cannot currently pursue a strategy of volume and growth. 
they're having to focus on their, quote, core roots, uh, and they're also having to charge higher prices to customers. So as we know, COVID-19 was not kind to the travel sector. And for Eurostar, COVID-19 problems have been exacerbated by Brexit, which Emma's going to get into in a little bit. But the brief history of the rail service is that when Eurostar launched, it was owned and shared between SNCF, which is the French rail service, SNCB, which is the Belgian rail service, only about 5% of the shares, and British Rail, which then was sold to London and Continental Railways, LCR, uh, but basically owned by uh, the UK government. And up until 2015, LCR owned 40% of the shares in Eurostar before that was sold to private companies. So the UK government gave up their shares in Eurostar. Now, SNCF still owns 55% of the company's shares, so that's a majority. And during the COVID-19 crisis, some of the French government's assistance to SNCF was also spent on Eurostar. But in order to survive the pandemic, because Eurostar was pretty much at risk of bankruptcy and passenger numbers had dropped significantly, the train service had to take out over 500 million pounds in, com- in commercial debt. And then on top of that, it still needed a 250 million pound bailout from shareholders, uh, which included assistance from the French government. So the UK government did not provide any state aid to Eurostar, and that's because it no longer owns any shares in the company. But basically, this led to the company having to cut some of its services, like trains from Kent and direct trains between London and Disneyland Paris. And it doesn't look like we're going to be getting those back anytime soon. And it also led to prices increasing for customers. Yeah, I was just talking to a regular user of the Eurostar this week. I haven't used it for years, actually. But um, he, you know, he goes back every couple of weeks and he said there was just a noticeable jump in waiting time and queues when the impact of Brexit finally happened. He said, you know, he was telling me that one of the advantages of Eurostar was that you could go from city centre to city centre without having to get there, you know, a couple of hours before, like at airports, you know, like before the service was built. And he said Brexit has kind of eroded that advantage. Is that true? Is Brexit one of the, the big reasons why Eurostar is in a mess? Well, it is Brexit, but like I mentioned, it's also the pandemic. So just like airline industries and travel in general, Eurostar suffered. The company's actually still in debt, and inflation is another issue. Um, it's increasing their costs by a lot, at least an extra 100 million pounds in costs for Eurostar to be specific as a result of inflation. But like you said, yes, Brexit is a huge issue, uh, and well, for the company. And now that there's been a rebound in travel, you would think that that would mean they would be increasing their profits by a lot. But actually, at peak capacity at London St. Pancras, they're actually running 30% lower than in 2019, pre-pandemic. So that's because it takes about 15 seconds longer per passenger to process people with a British passport due to Brexit. And so because of this, Eurostar just can't get as many people through as quickly as they used to. And in response, they've had to limit their capacity on trains, which obviously means they can't make as much money as they used to with tickets. Yeah, in this letter, he said that, that, you know, if they hadn't have reduced capacity on trains, they'd have seen daily queues in central London like we saw this summer at the Channel Ports. I think 40% of passengers on Eurostar are British, hence the problems because of Brexit. Emma, the CEO, painted a pretty miserable picture for the outlook for the Eurostar and its passengers, of course. Things don't look as though they're going to get improve anytime soon, and there's reasons to believe it might even get worse. Yeah, um, sorry, I wish I had some good news for Eurostar fans, of which I'm definitely one, but the picture that Damar painted was pretty bleak. The company still has this huge debt, as Jen mentioned, so ticket prices are certainly unlikely to fall anytime soon. But Damar also flagged up a few problems for the future, and one of these is just what he called ongoing uncertainty over passenger behaviour. Basically, will people go back to the same travel patterns as they did before the pandemic? A lot of Eurostar's customers have always been people who were travelling for business, and companies may just decide to carry on 
having meetings over Zoom, save the price of a year of a train ticket. But there's also these Brexit problems, which obviously are not going away. These are the new rules. They're here to stay. And there's another problem on the horizon, which is also sort of Brexit related. This is the EU's new, what they call the entry and exit system, which is basically just enhanced passport checks at external EU borders. But of course, one of these external EU borders is the border between the UK and France since Brexit. And that includes things like doing facial scans and fingerprints at external borders. And just like the other post-Brexit checks, they're just going to take longer. So companies are already sort of being faced with expanding processing times for each passenger. So Eurostar basically has three choices. They can either expand the check-in area, which Damas says at London St Pancras is not really possible because it's already pretty crowded. They can reduce services even more than they already have, which is clearly going to make their financial problems worse. Or they're going to be, as you said, facing massive queues like we saw at Dover, which is clearly not going to improve the service either. So it's not very good news, I'm afraid. Yeah, he said that basically the pressures are not abating. Uh, This letter has kind of done the rounds on Twitter. It's got an awful lot of publicity and talk about it. It feels like it was almost like a a plea for help from the British government in a way, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the the Eurostar kind of ended up, as as Jen mentioned, because of the way they're structured during the pandemic, they kind of ended up as almost a bit of a political football that the French government didn't want to end up taking sole responsibility for this company when they only have half of it and the British government wouldn't take any wouldn't give them any state aid because they don't own it anymore so poor old Eurostar is kind of stuck in the middle of between these two governments you would think I mean the Eurostar it's such a good service and you would think uh, especially with people migrating from planes to trains that both governments would be really keen to save it but that doesn't really seem to be the case at the moment. It is a fantastic service, yeah, and we hope that when they revamp Gare du Nord, maybe uh, that will help, you know, in terms of passenger numbers. But, um, well, it's something we're going to have to keep an eye on in the future. There used to be talk about Eurostar opening up services to all parts of of France. There is still talk, but uh, it seems a bit bleak at the moment. Thanks, guys, for filling us in on Eurostar Troubles. As well as colourful leaves, wine harvests and cooler temperatures, autumn in France also means mushroom picking. Yep, it's a very popular pastime, but it comes, believe it or not, with its own dangers or risks. To help us understand them, James Harrington, who's done a bit of foraging in his time down in the southwest, is going to explain what to look out for when you head into the woods this autumn. James, before we get to the dangers, just tell us a bit about mushroom foraging in France. Well, first things first, it's actually a lovely way to waste a couple of hours outside with the family on a warm autumn afternoon in, in France. Uh, another bonus, of course, is that you can bring home something genuinely delicious to eat, and it's uh, also pretty much free once you factor in any travel costs, of course. Now... We're in peak mushroom season right now, and depending on where you live, it's either just started, about to finish, or somewhere in the middle. This is a hugely popular annual thing in France. It's about this time of year you'll see people in fields, in woods, and at the sides of roads with a basket in one hand and a knife in the other, always go foraging for mushrooms with a knife, scanning the ground for some fungus gold. What are the things mushroom pickers have to be aware of when they go out into the woods? What are the dangers? The, the dangers are written and unwritten. Obviously, the first rule is uh, only eat something if you know what it is. There are thousands, thousands of varieties of mushroom in France, and most of them aren't actually good for you. But if you do decide to go foraging for mushrooms, know that you can just rock up at a pharmacy and ask them to identify what you've picked, and they'll tell you whether they're safe to eat. Obviously, do heed their advice. And it's not entirely perfect. After one of our foraging sessions, the pharmacist we visited sucked their teeth and admitted they weren't entirely sure whether our 
the, the SEP we proudly showed them was the safe SEP or the dangerous SEP. Uh, we agreed it was wise to err on the side of caution then. Uh, as for the written rules, they include the fact that you can't actually wander, just wander into woodland and start picking um, anything. You need to know who owns the land and you will need their permission first because the Code Seville states that their land, their fruit. Uh, and this includes windfall fruit and technically any fruit from benches overhanging public land. If you are caught picking fruit or mushrooms on private land, you can face some fairly hefty fines. Between 750 and 45,000 euro are, are the figures quoted in the, on, the, on various websites. And even if, in the worst cases, prison time. Even on public land, there are limits on, on how much you can pick. Uh, usually around five litres or around two kilograms. Uh, you can get away with that being, being described as for family use. And you can get a fair few mushrooms in two kilograms, in all honesty. The punishment for exceeding these limits is the same as the punishment for trespassing on private land. So, you know, don't try and push your luck too far. Uh, be aware, too, that local authorities may have passed additional rules uh, to prevent protecting certain local environments. It's a good idea to check with your Marie or local prefect to, to, so you're aware of the rules in local areas. Oh, and don't forget, you can't sell any produce you've foraged. That's illegal. And finally, it's that time of the week where we run through some French vocab expressions and words that have been in the news this week or just on our minds. Emma, do you want to start us off? Yeah, I found a cute little French uh, phrase in a headline this week, actually, and it is uh, plomber l'ambiance. This was in a headline, and according to the French media, this is what happened when Macron told his ministers that guys were pushing ahead with this pension reform. Immediately in the uh, in the room, there was a plomber l'ambiance, which basically means to like to lower or to kill the mood, with plomber coming from plomb or lead. Um, so I guess in English you might say that the idea had gone down like a lead balloon. Okay, Jen. I've got bivalent. Uh, so you've probably seen this in the news as well, uh, especially you've probably seen les vaccins bivalents and that they're going to be available starting October 3rd. Uh, so actually, these are the dual strain vaccines, uh, the ones that are adapted to the Omicron variant, um, and they will be available in France starting on October 3rd. So if you're part of the group that can get a second booster, then you can go ahead and plan on, uh, on getting that starting uh, next week. Another one from you, Emma. Yeah, in uh, in honour of Bruno Le Maire, uh, I've gone with un col roulé, which is a, a roll neck or a turtleneck sweater. Definitely. And Jen, you had a good expression for us this week. Yes, uh, I have one of my favourites. It's ça va pas la tête? Uh, and you have to say it like that because it's asking someone, are you crazy or what's wrong with you? <laughs> but in kind of a nice way, it's not super mean. It's it's more of just a joking expression. If someone says something ridiculous and you respond, vous ça va pas la tête? Or, for example, uh, in response to Emma's claims about Vendée being the best uh, coastal region in France, my partner so kindly said, mais ça va pas la tête? So... I hear parents saying that uh, when their kids mess up or do something naughty all the time. Ça va pas la tête? <laughs> scream it in the parks. <laughs> Finally, this one is a real, real bane in my life. It's bain. And you know why I'm saying it? Bain. It obviously sounds nothing like my name, which is Ben. However, when people write it, it's spelled B-E-N. So in all these French WhatsApp groups... The number of times someone will start a message with bang, and I think they're talking to me, and what they're really saying is, you know, they're just saying bang, you know, well, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there for ages thinking, is that to me? Do I need to answer that? And they'll be like, bang, si. And then the other guy will go, bang, no, in a WhatsApp group. And I'm like, what the hell are they doing? I have no idea what's going on. But no one seems to get that, you know, when I get annoyed by bang. Well, interestingly, Ben is a bane of my life too. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Yeah, I should have realised that before I brought that one up. I knew that was a mistake. Hopefully there'll be some Bens out there listening who will have a, a bit of sympathy for me. 
and that brings us to the end of this week's episode thanks to you all for listening don't forget feel free to spread the word if you like our podcast and always leave a review where you listen to it if you can thanks jen thanks emma <laughs>